Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. I'm joined today by the CTOs of Plaid and Brex. Successful fintechs that found early escape velocity did so by rapidly responding to their customers' needs for complementary products and services. There were just a handful of companies that were able to do this, actually, to go from zero to one in a way that required massive scaling and building product platforms that could support this growth. And a lot of times that required scaffolding, deconstruction, and rescaffolding while the growth engine was revving. Plaid's Jean Denise and Brex's Cause are two of the best in the business. I feel like this discussion was a masterclass on what it takes to lead tech and product teams at the highest level. Having both CTOs on the podcast was also interesting. See where they concurred and with one another and where they departed. We discussed the biggest challenges they've learned in scaling and the organizational changes they've made to support different stages of their growth. We look at the acquisitions both companies made and how Brex and Plaid integrated new teams, tech, and products. I asked Kaz and John Denise about their approach to talent and how their teams are organized to harness their people's talents. Lastly, we drill down further into how their product planning and product pipelines work and how both have evolved as their companies have grown. Here's my conversation with the CTOs of Brex and Plaid. So Kaz, can you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Hi, thanks for, for having me. Uh, I'm Kaz. Uh, I'm the CTO of Brex. Uh, we empower employees anywhere to make better financial decisions. I've uh, been here for almost five years now, joined when the company was super, super tiny. We're like 40-ish people and engineering is about 20 people. Um, before that, I was at Stripe for about four and a half years, joined when the company was about 100 people and worked on financial infrastructure. So I've kind of been in the payment space for, for quite some time. And then before that, was working at Microsoft for about five and a half years, worked on Azure and Office 365 way back when, when we were first building those out. Great. And welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. Um, Jean-Denis, can you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, hi, Zach. First, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Um, yeah, my name is Jean-Denis. I'm CTO at, at Plaid, and I'm responsible for product engineering, design, and our entire kind of product direction and technical strategy. Um, you know, Plaid, as a company, we exist to improve uh, people and businesses' access to better financial tools so they can have better financial outcomes. And we do that by creating a platform and technology that enables banks, fintechs, developers to kind of reduce friction of access to financial services, reduce the cost of moving money, uh, offering loans, and just generally just we want to increase access to, to financial services for everybody. Uh, I've been at the company um, almost seven years. So since, you know, 40 people to uh, about a thousand today, um, I worked at Dropbox before was actually, I worked also on the payment side. I was working on billing and subscriptions and, and growth quite a lot. And then before that, I uh, worked in the hedge fund space, uh, different, different side of, of FinTech, probably more Fin than tech. Um, uh, but I did that for a few years and, uh, yeah, excited to be here. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you, John Denis. And I think one of the things that underscores both of your experiences and the companies you work for presently is is, is this growth story. Uh, I don't know if we call it hyper growth or certainly strong growth. Um, I'd love to hear about some of the biggest challenges and lessons you both have learned in scaling your team. Um, let's start there. Uh, maybe maybe I'll start with two things I wish I'd done better you know, along the way. 2020 hindsight. Yeah, 2020 hindsight. I think, you know, Plaid in its early days was really good at, at zero to one. Um, and I think as we grew a lot, we started to have a lot of challenges around 
building more reliable systems, building more mature systems. And so we really looked to hire people who, who had those experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think we did a we did a good job at that. But you, after a while, you take for granted that you're really good at building new products and you start to realize you, you lose a little bit of that DNA. And so one thing I wish we'd done differently through hypergrowth is focus more, especially in the middle years on hiring ex-founders or people who had experienced with zero to one. Eventually, we realized that we needed to rekindle kind of that power. And now we've got it back and, and you can see like our shipping velocity has, you know, of, of new things has gone up tremendously. But I think there was a period maybe like three, four years ago where kind of we, we lost um, we lost sight of that. And then the other lesson is not not so much on on, rec- on recruiting. Right? Hypergrowth basically breaks everything all the time, right? And, and inefficiency goes into the system. And I think as a leader, um, one thing for me is like you have to keep that muscle of going deep on things because your intuition about what's happening on the ground actually changes a lot, mm. right? You remember what it was like when you were closer to the everyday engineer and the everyday team, but then suddenly you've added. 100 engineers and actually the day-to-day experience of people on your team is fundamentally different than what you remember and if you don't rekindle that if you don't force yourself to go deep and go into the details and understand what's going well and what's going wrong your mental model of the org doesn't adapt as quickly as the hyper growth is actually like changing the org so like from a leadership perspective that's the thing that i I do a lot more now i i kind of go deep more and go talk to ICs more than I used to and try to understand what's going on in the ground. Not because I think things are going badly, but because I need like a, I need a better understanding of, of, of the day-to-day of folks. So those would be two lessons for me. I got it. Yeah, um, so, how about you, Kaz? Yeah. Yeah. Someone tied to what Jean Denis said is what I've noticed uh, is that it's not the absolute number that typically breaks or changes. There were times when Brex was growing so fast that I honestly couldn't tell you exactly how many people we had. Um, it's more, there's like step function changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I realized is that most of the times those happen when you add layers of management. Like every single time we add a new layer, a bunch of processes broke, more communication was necessary, inconsistency in the product, which I think goes uh, to Jean-Denis' to second point. The other thing that um, uh, for me, I think was very helpful is when I joined Brex, there was no organizational structure. It was just 20-ish engineers, some front end, some back end, basically all working together. Every month, Pedro would decide what we're working on. Uh, and, and that was kind of it. And the recurring process wasn't scaling. And in that kind of growth stage, having to plan ahead and having a solid foundation, I think really helped us scale. And I remember when I first joined, a lot of folks felt that some of those are, are we too small to have a structure? Are we being too rigorous about these sort of things? Whereas it's just like embracing the chaos. And with, with kind of that hyper growth, you have the chaos no matter what. I tell people you either have a problem of things breaking too much because of growth or things not growing fast enough. And I will always take the growth pain anytime. Good and problem to have. Exactly. And then having that foundation allowed us to kind of constantly be ahead of that, that scale, whether it was team structure, where we're hiring, the roles that we're hiring, bringing in management, bringing in experienced managers who have seen the scale uh, and kind of absorb it. In the last year, the thing that's changed the most for me is what's the high order bit in the organization based on the scaling needs. I think like everybody else, 
last 12 to 18 months have had significantly slower growth in terms of headcount and organization than they were in the previous years when everybody was growing as fast as possible. And that also means adjusting how we think about what's important for a manager, what does career trajectory look like. For the ICs, maybe less so, uh, but for managers especially, I think there's a lot of transformational um, focus in the last 12 to 18 months. So you both alluded um, to my next question, but I, I'm also curious, you, you, you talked about like sort of the growth that you guys had as managers as well. I'm, I'm curious about the composite of your teams and how that's evolved through this, this period. Yeah, so we have, I would say we started, like I said, everything in the team was basically front end, back end, no structure. Mm-hmm. The first thing, once you add a structure, you start having the need for managers. When you're super early stage, I don't know about John, the need, but when I joined, none of the people on the organization had management experience. They were just really talented engineers, a lot of them their first company or their second company. So definitely uh, skewed more junior. And being able to kind of like figure out how to find the right balance between hiring externally and coaching for, for management was, mm-hmm. was one of the early uh, challenges and tweaking that over time. And then you just started having more specialized roles. I remember we hired security people, we hired infrastructure people, we hired data scientists. And then even within those, for example, data scientists, you start hiring ML folks and analytics folks and infrastructure folks, and you start getting more and more specialized. And the challenge that all of us have at some point is I've primarily been uh, kind of like working on cloud infrastructure and backend services. I've done some front end, personally, did not enjoy it. That was generally the familiarity that I had. And so now you have to familiarize yourself with all these different functions and disciplines Mm -hmm. and hire people that really know what they're doing on that and kind of empower them versus manage them directly and tell them what to do. Because I don't know what the best data science organization does in the world. I have to hire someone that does that and and figure out how to help them. And did the reporting structure um, and the, I guess, the flatness, you mentioned having higher managers that, that evolved too, I assume as well, right? Exactly. You start, in general, my philosophy is to keep the org as flat as possible mm-hmm. um, for as long as possible, and then generally have some formulaic aspect. There's also the time to what systems they own, what are the business problems, the goals. In the early days, my my general advice for, for founders that I talk to is embrace the chaos and the change because so many things are evolving so quickly, especially in that hyper growth. And then I would say over the last couple of years, that's slowed down. We've started finding more of a rhythm, more of a structure. Uh, to Jean-Denis' first point, uh, you're hiring zero to one people a lot and you're dealing with a lot of zero to one challenges. And then over the years, you're starting to maintain stuff and evolve systems. Mm-hmm. And so changing the organizational structure probably doesn't make as much sense to have massive shifts. Um, and I think that's generally helped build momentum as well. How about you, Jean-Denis? Yeah, a couple of things popped out. Like, I, I, first of all, on on hiring experts, like a, a learn. I think for me that I think I underestimated is the importance of not just the traditional areas where you hire experts and when you're going company fast, like, oh, I need security folks, I need SREs or people who have experience with scale, but expertise really specific to the domain that we have. So, you know, at Plaid, we launched like a a really good fraud product. And I think initially when we launched it, we had this, this kind of typical Silicon Valley hubris, which is like, oh, we're really good in data science. This is data science problem. We're going to be really good at it. And we actually build a really good model, but then we are selling to the fraud and risk teams at you know very sophisticated banks, very sophisticated fintechs. And, and those folks 
it's great that you have like a new perspective on fraud, but but they have decades of experience dealing with fraud in a certain way, a certain vocabulary, a certain way that they, you know, add attributes to their models, a certain way that they decision. And so we, we had this great product, but I don't think we had enough people on the team who actually really understood the, the user's perspective on, on the other side. And so then we we started changing our hiring more to people who I think had real depth in things like account takeover or fraud mm-hmm. or traditional like ACH rails. And, and some of those folks' background wasn't at startups, right? They were people who I would say are normal way to recruit would be like, oh yeah, no, they didn't they didn't work at you know company X and company Y. And so, but the reality is the domain expertise is so important. It is, and and I think now we now there's like you go to talk to Platt's fraud team and you know you you get it like these are people who've lived bank fraud for a long time so they they understand it but if you talk to our fraud team three to four years ago it didn't feel like that and I think we didn't we had this kind of weird Silicon Valley hubris and we really needed to be like no no we got to go in the shoes of our customers and our customers aren't just fintech startups now our customers are the largest financial institutions in the world and the cool thing is you can still bring that new thinking. To the existing approach, but you at least you really understand how traditionally like that domain thinks about the problem. So that that's one thing on the hyper growth that I think, you know, I think we got traditional expert hiring right, but I don't think we asked ourselves really like for domain, like expertise looks and feels different. It's going to have different experiences on the resumes and so on. And we need to bring that in. Um, and that second topic, totally different. You were talking about org design and, and uh, you know, it made me think of, of uh, reorgs a little bit. Um, first, when you're hyper growth, your current org structure never feels good. It just can't, right? Because you set it at point can't keep A up. Yeah. and then you've got 50% more people, you know, 180 days later or 365 days later, and clearly it's going to like, feel like it's breaking, but you got this danger where you're basically reorging too much. And so I think, I think one thing at Plaid that we did is we really forced ourselves through the hyper growth to just be like, look, this is the way it's going to be for two years we're going to like power through the pain points and just like, like cause that embrace the chaos just because the cost of like always trying to optimize when you're going so quickly just doesn't make sense. But you know, you take discrete points of time, like annual planning or whatnot, and you do it because you got to do it, but you don't, you don't let it distract you the rest of the way. Um, And then the, we're organized differently for the last two years than we ever have been before we, we, we look more like business units. And so one mm-hmm. thing that, that we did that I think has worked really, really well for us is first we like split out platforms and we were pretty explicit. Like this set of functionality is a platform. Your customers are internal users at Plaid of the platform. But then for each of the BUs, we let them kind of tweak the way they operate based on their customers and how mm. their customers expected us to ship product. And so some BUs are shipping kind of the UX and the UI that you know, end users go through every day when they connect a bank account through Plaid or verify their identity through Plaid. And there you can iterate pretty quickly on that because new end user comes in, like if you tweak things around, it makes sense. Another team is bidding, building fraud models, right? Where you don't really want to iterate on your fraud model live. Like it, it's, everything's very different. When you have a new version of it, you need to do a proof of concept, a back test with your customers. The shipping timelines are totally different. And so those teams need to operate differently. And so I, I think that's one thing, and it's not just about org design, but I think you really have to ask yourself, like different parts of your product, different teams, they operate on different timelines. There are different levels of conservative. They're, you know, they're shipping differently. Some are shipping API, some are sh- shipping UI. 
and so you've got to adapt your process and the way that you operate. Um, and when we switched to BUs, we had leaders for the BUs who could change the way product, engineering, design, data science operate. They could tweak the relationship between the BU and go to market right, for that product. And that's proven that's proven super, super useful because before we were trying to fit everything into like one product development process, one customer approach, and it was no longer working as our product became more and more complicated as we were selling to different customer types and, and so on and so forth. And so I wish, I mean, I don't know if we could have done that much earlier, but I think we were very explicit about that change and the whole company turned to it. And, and today at Plaid, different parts of the company feel even culturally different because of how much they've kind of absorbed this this point of view. So that that cultural difference, I assume that also is a product um, if that if that product was sorry, if that product was acquired, if that was an external team that joined as well, um, that's an assumption. And I guess um, both your firms have made acquisitions. Um, how how have those gone for you guys in terms of bringing in new cultures, new set of skills um, and integrating them into, into your existing processes? Do you, do you mind if I take that one first? Real yeah, quick? go for it. Yeah, we did two big acquisitions that are pretty different. So the latest one is this company called Cognito, and they have an identity verification product. And they're we acquired them, not definitely not for the talent, not just for the technology, but actually for their knowledge and understanding of that space. And so I think there actually we did not want their culture to normalize to plaids. And I think this is really important when you acquire a really successful business you kind of don't want to mess with the magic, right? And and so we, we've left them culturally, mostly they operate as they always have. There's some technical and cultural things where we decided it made sense to do it the same. So like they plan the same way that we do, right? They do semi-annual planning roughly how everybody else at Plaid does it because if they depend on other parts of the org that needs to go the normal way. Um, you know, they use Jira like we do. There's like some some things like that. Actually, I say that, but actually they use Linear still for a lot of their products. But when they when they have to rely on the rest of Plaid, right? They, they use Jira, you know, they use our Slack, like blah, blah, blah. You define the interfaces that have to be in common. But otherwise, I kind of, it's not a pirate ship, but I want, I want this part of the org that thinks differently because they need it for their domain. And as long as you don't develop too much of an us versus them mentality, as long as everybody really understands, hey, like for my problem set, for these things, like this is the right way to approach, it works. On the technical side, it's tougher. Like, you know, they use a different stack than we do. And it would make no sense to rewrite their entire product on our stack. And so what it's meant is for our infrastructure team, it's more burden, right? It's like mm -hmm. another language that has to be supported, like observability, you know, RPC, all these things have to, and you've got to eat that cost and you can't ignore that cost when you make an acquisition. And, you know, there's other costs when they need like a, an expert in X, like a UI front end expert, that person goes over there and they have to familiarize themselves with the new stack. And then if they don't stay in there and then they go work on another project, you've kind of eaten that ramp up cost of that person mm -hmm. and you don't get long-term payoff. So you have to think about those things differently, right? Moving people around, you don't get the benefit as quickly. So you do have some taxes, but I just don't think normalizing them to our culture makes any sense. I think it would, they would move slower or differently. They would, you know, they would, it would change their culture. It would make people want to leave and, and so on and so forth. I'm going to compare it to this other acquisition that we did that's that's different. So Cognito is a different product that we added to our suite and wanted to cross-sell and and that's worked really, really well. 
a few years ago, we acquired a company that effectively did a lot of what Plaid does. There was like 70% overlap in the product portfolio. Was that Quavo on the wealth management side? Quavo, right? Correct. And there we actually made a really explicit decision that over two years, we wanted to totally integrate the stacks, integrate the culture, and only and because they did a lot of bank and, and financial institution integration, we just wanted one way to do that. Now, we wanted the best of both worlds. So there we did actually take some of the way they did things and incorporated them into the Plaid way and then kept some of the Plaid things and had them adapt to it because that's how you would get the Makes best sense. benefit. But today, yeah. people don't think themselves as ex quobo, right? There's none of that. It's like, it's just, it's Plaid you know, it's Plaid FA or Plaid Investments product. And again, we were very explicit because there's so much overlap that there was no benefit to keeping a separate way of doing things. And so, you know, those are two different approaches. I think whenever you go into an acquisition though, you you gotta be really thoughtful because I've seen organ rejections, right? Or places where it really doesn't work. I, and I don't think there's one universal playbook. Like when we, when we acquired these companies, I went to talk to dozens of founders and CTOs had done integrations and was like, what worked? And what you learn is lots of different things work, but it's very specific to the domain. That sounds like great yeah. advice. Go ahead, Kaz. I very much, I mean, not a lot to add there. I would say we've done two major acquisitions, uh, a company called Pry. Um, which does financial reporting and kind of help founders uh, do modeling for uh, for like early stage revenue. And then we uh, acquired a company called Weave, which was building a platform for integrating with e-commerce platforms, which we can then use for underwriting. And similar to Plaid, there's different approaches. The platform stuff is less customer visible, more internal. And so you have more liberties of what you do. Pry was a very successful product. Uh, when we acquired it and we didn't want to mess with that. The only thing I would add uh, that we've done uh, at Rex very much subscribe to letting the cultures kind of like um, stay as independent as possible because you acquired them for a reason. We actually had folks from Brex join those teams um, and kind of move to them when they joined. Uh, and it helped for two reasons. One, it, it helped bridge the gap in cultures uh, and, and kind of learn and, and disseminate that across the company. And so the way I look at it is, the Brex culture actually evolves through each one of these MNAs, and their cultures also um, adapt stuff from from Brex. And the second one is just inherent knowledge of the company. Almost every time when you see the acquisitions, when we're talking about companies where Brex and Platt are roughly, let's say, a thousand-ish people, you're acquiring companies that are like 10, 20, 50, 100 people, significantly smaller scale. Mm-hmm. And that's generally, I think, the, the case for most acquisitions that are not just mergers. And having some people that know how the company operates, that know who to talk to, that know the systems can help accelerate so much more. It can also help bridge gaps when it comes to technical arguments or debates or decisions that need to be made because they can provide context from both kind of sides. Um, The thing that I try to always um, uh, make sure is that there's no us versus them. Um, Like we always, we typically let folks who join be called the like, Pry crew or the Weave crew for some time, but over time, it kind of, there is no Pry crew. And the fact that you actually add folks from Brex to those teams makes it less clear that's like, oh, that's that cohort that's not Brex employees because everybody is Brex uh, at that point. I appreciate that. So so with these acquisitions, um, you guys have also, both companies have done a great job of expanding your product portfolios. And I'm, I'm curious, um, how you dealt with growth in that sense, like how, how you scaled your the underlying platform, um, 
Jean-Denis, you mentioned earlier in one of your answers, you know, about hitting a point and then figuring it out and, and being to re-accelerate um, new product launches. Can you talk about how you've navigated through that? Kaz, let's start with you. Yeah, Kaz, I, say, I, I feel like I spoke yeah, a lot. Happy to take so I'll let you get the low hanging um, fruit. <laughs> so we've gone through two types of uh, kind of product growth. Uh, and I think both of them bring their own challenges and most companies tend to experience it in, in one direction or another. The first one is going from single product to multi-product. Mm -hmm. uh, and you also mentioned it, every company over time has some core product uh, and then they figure out like, oh, we can also do X uh, and serve those companies. So for Bricks, we started as a credit card for startups. And then we said, hey, we can make this credit card work for other uh, types of companies. So we went Verticals. to e-commerce and nonprofits mm -hmm. and life sciences and other industries. And then we said, hey, founders really also need a bank account. Like, what do you need before you even enter a credit card? You need a bank account. So we built uh, Brex Cash to, to kind of facilitate that. And then over time, we're like, okay, companies also need to manage their, their uh, spend because you go from this trust-based model to more one where you have a finance team, you start putting some processing in place. So we started building uh, spend management as well. And so you can see how these things evolve. Uh, for Brex in particular, it was always an evolution that was very complementary and unified. Uh, so despite having all these different product lines, we had to learn how to operate as a multi-product company and give different product cycles at different stages. Uh, but we didn't actually go down the like GM business unit model because they're so interconnected. Like if you're a cash customer, you also have a card. And so uh, there's a lot of usability there. The second type of growth in the product is your persona. Again, we started with startups. And now if you look at the last couple of years, we've moved so much up market and serving like enterprise companies, public companies. We have companies like DoorDash, Indeed, Lemonade, and others who have very, very different needs. And so the spectrum of companies that you're supporting uh, for your customers is so wide that the product doesn't make sense when you're talking about like, let me build a feature X because how... A startup uses feature X, or even if they use it versus enterprise, is so vastly different. Definitely. And you have to start adapting to that. And even within each of these segments, like we started with like, okay, in enterprise, you have employees and managers and the finance teams. But then we realized like, oh, there's like a travel uh, person, there's a procurement person, and even managers have different levels and different needs. And you have execs at companies and you have EAs at companies. And so you just start diversifying the persona and starting to be very explicit about the segment you're optimizing for and the persona and what's the ideal experience. And sometimes that comes at trade-offs for other personas. Sometimes you can optimize for both. Sometimes you basically build it slightly differently depending on the persona. But that was a big, um, big change for us, I would say, in the last couple of years. How about you, Jean-Denis? Yeah, the... Because Plaid is mostly an API company, meaning most of our products, even if they have UI, UX, for someone to adopt them, someone at our customer has to integrate with a new API. E expansion into multi-product takes much, much longer than at a, at a lot of other businesses. A lot of businesses, like you build a new feature or a new SKU, and it's in the UX. And then you, you know, someone starts to use it and you put them in a trial. And then after 30 days, you know, the seed cost goes from $9 a month to $12 a month, right? And and for us, that's not really an option. And so I think the, the first thing we had to realize is that, hey, like multi-product for us makes a ton of sense because our customers do want to consolidate APIs. There's a whole lot of downstream problems like fraud, identity verification, speeding up the 
you know, the rate at which money moves around that, that we can solve for our customers, right? Uh, and, but we really have to ask ourselves like, hey, given, given the longer timelines, you convince them, they're like, yeah, I want to do a trial. Then they're like, oh, we'll put it on our next quarter's roadmap and then do the trial. Then So next thing you know, it's like, you know, three quarters to get the, the product out into usage. Like given that, we've, we've opted to really be picky in where we go multi-product. And we've looked at it through a couple of lenses. Like one of them, we have to fundamentally believe that we can offer a above best in class, meaning like a better than the best solution product in that in that vertical or in that in that new SKU area. And I think that's actually different than a lot of multi-product. A lot of new multi-product actually, you can build something that's at best in class. And it's okay because people want to bundle and and you know there's there might be some synergy in the UX or whatnot. And so they're willing to go for it. But for us, we're like, hey, like effectively from an integration standpoint, people are always going to make a decision, Plaid versus somebody else, as like, hey, do I stay with my current API solution here or do I integrate a new one? And it's costly. So that's the first filter. And and I think that's really pushed us as a business to ask ourselves, like, what is our competitive advantage? Like fundamentally, why can we build things that nobody else can? And, and it's always gone back to us to like network effects, either data network effects, where we see enough that we can deliver a better fraud solution, a better ATO solution, a better like credit risk solution. Or it's because we see users multiple times that we can build higher converting UX for the end consumer that's trying to use a financial service. And so where we get a yes on either one of those two or ideally on both, then we're like, hey, this is an area to go multi-product. And then once we do it, we're like, we're very aware that until we get deep product market fit, it's not going to feel like an accelerated, mm. you know, growth rate for the product. But what's really key for us is once it has product market fit, one, can we drive a really high attach rate for new customers? So can we drive 40, 50% attach rates for new account signups? That doesn't drive a ton of ARR that year. But if you look at a four-year horizon, right, those customers are going to go into multiple SKUs. And so that's kind of how we rank success of a new product is like, hey, can we get the attach rate for new customers really high? And then the second one is, can we cross-sell effectively into existing accounts? And, and there you can use muscle like price bundling and whatnot. But again... The way we look at it is like our solution needs to be better than market. Like literally every product needs to be better than market because it leverages network effect. And so far for us, that's worked really well. The, the third thing is we're trying to get to a, to a product surface area that is more UI based, because what I would love is for people to be able to try and adopt products without having to involve their engineering teams. So we have a version of Plaid right now um, called Link Delivery, where basically you don't need to do almost any backend integration. And after someone connects their account, we put you in a Plaid UI that allows you to do most of what you need to do without needing to evolve a ton of your engineering team. And then if you see value from that, then it's easier for you to decide like, hey, I'm going to do a deeper integration with this new product because it's it's really valuable. And I didn't, you know, because before I worked on, when I was at Dropbox, right, it's a, it's a visual product it's on, your, it's on your desktop, like you used to go into dropbox.com. I just didn't appreciate the extent to which uh, API products are more complicated. Now, the flip side of all this is API products are extremely sticky once you're in there because ripping them out, again, costs your right. engineering to move to a new vendor. And so you you have more cost up front, but you have an LTV that that tends to be to be much higher. 
So that, that's how we've, you know, that's how we think about it. It's always a challenge, you know, new products, like culturally more zero to one. People are very impatient in, in turn inside companies, right? They see a thing that driving hundreds of, you know, hundreds of millions of revenue that's like growing like mid double digits, like they're really happy about it. And then they see a new product that's, you know, driving 500K of, of ARR and they're like, well, what's going on there, right? And you, you have to tell people like, hey, like the question is, can we quadruple it? Can we quadruple it? Then can we triple it? Then can we triple it? Then we can we double it? Then we can double it. And then it starts to be really, really interesting. But that's that's an eight-year journey. And so your team needs to understand that where leadership has to do is really like tell people like, look, listen, like these things will be huge and they'll be huge for the business, but you got to give them the, the time to grow because we're not, you can't just put UI in front of a hundred million people and get them to use a new feature. I appreciate that. And um, is that need to be best in market? Um, was that behind some of the changes in the in the payroll aggregation product that recently? Oh, you're asking. I, I don't know if, how much I am allowed to talk about this in the podcast. But I think I think the reality is what we found around payroll is that people chose to use Plaid because of the rest of the product, the bank connectivity, the the income verification based on bank accounts, and payroll is much lower in the flow. What happens is if you can't qualify a loan, so context for everybody is we 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 had a we had a product where we would verify your payroll and we built it ourselves. And then eventually we decide to partner with a few companies where they do the payroll verification, but you're still using a Plaid API. Plaid product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this is what we looked at. We were like, okay, what's what's the waterfall of usage by our customers? And that's first they want to do income based on bank data because that's the best. That's the highest converting one. And they know Plaid is best at that. Then they look at the income model. And again, Plaid's data science is best at that. But there's some people where even after those two, you're not quite sure it's the person you still want to verify payroll. And so then we we built a really good product that was actually like best in class at that than everybody else. But it was, it was no better. And we looked at it and we're like, we're investing all of these people in this. And I'd rather invest people in something that's unique, and I can wrap two other really good companies to get to get that functionality, which is downstream of the lending funnel. Like it's just not the most important part. Mm-hmm. And so now we have a product suite that covers everything, and I've been able to turn R and D budget right into operating budget on which I get nice margin. And so that's like a really good solution because then I can take that bundle of engineers and I can have them work on, you know, like. I can't say what it is, but the next thing in that area that we think is a huge difference maker. And look, from the outside, that maybe not be what it looks like. But actually, the reality is since we did that, not only do we have much better economics, but we have more product bandwidth on the things that our customers are actually thinking is the most important for them. And you know, that's, that's I think, how you make great decisions as a business. Now, if we had unlimited resources, no, that's not how I would have treated it, right? I'd want to like build everything, but you learn that partnerships is really powerful. By the way, and the cool thing about this is these companies were competitors, right? But now they're partners, right? And we bring them a lot of business, and so and now they can focus more on the thing that they're really good at, and our customers get it, and our incentives are aligned, and that's like a nice place to be. Not everybody has to be your competitor in the world. Like you don't have to build everything. You can partner and actually serve your customers better and get more bandwidth to do other things. I like the way you, yeah. you explain that. Cause how about you? Do, do you have decisions like build versus partner and, and some that are working for you in different models in that way? Very much so. And the thing that I was going to say to, to John Amy's point is 
A lot of companies, and we've gone through this as well, think about, hey, what's the cost of building X? How many engineers, how many PMs, designers, go-to-market people, et cetera, et cetera. And you look at a number and then you can do some math to say how much revenue you need to get over what period of time. And while I think that's very helpful and we do that with every new product, we actually look at what's the initial investment, but actually what's the ongoing investment over time. Because if it's successful, it's going to grow. No product have I seen that's like, oh, it's a team of five people that build it and maintain it for the next five years, 10 years, and it's just going to be a huge product. Everything grows. So we kind of model that. But the thing that we've learned at Brex, and we've gone through times when we're too, um, too broad and then we've narrowed the focus, uh, there's two main things. One is leadership bandwidth. Um, it's not about just about executing, but like who has the vision, who has is kind of thinking ahead, how do all the pieces fit together? And in general, uh, you need certain people for that. And you have a very fixed amount of great people who, who are have the right maturity, expertise, seniority, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to do that. And most of the times that is the number one limitation that we have. Uh, we can always hire more people to build things, but the leadership bandwidth is the one that's that generally tends to be the co uh, costliest. And whenever we realize that we spread ourselves too thin, it comes down to we had enough engineers, et cetera, but we didn't have enough focus, both at the leadership team in the company and the leadership on that product. The second one is not just the, the financial cost, but the opportunity cost. And I think that's what most companies tend to underestimate. It's not, should I spend 10 engineers working on X, but what else could I have those 10 engineers working on that might be way more valuable, both short-term and long-term? And this is more of an art. There's no real, I don't have a formula for how to decide that, but a lot of times when we think about that, and especially if we kind of have a more constrained view of like budgets and headcount and where we want to apply it, it really forces you to focus uh, because if you think about unlimited resources and people and uh, everything else, of course, you can build everything that you want. Um, on the partnership side, that's been pretty core from Brex from, from the beginning because we work with uh, a lot of companies. We work with Plaid, uh, for example. Uh, we work with banks. Uh, we work with MasterCard. We also partner with um, uh, with other companies where uh, there's like um, a API integration, and the way I thought about it mostly is, is this core to our business? And is this where we have most of our expertise? And I try to think about it from that lens versus like, let me build everything. And it goes all the way from infrastructure to all the way in the product. And we haven't gotten it right. So I'll talk about a more controversial example potentially. But in the early days, we've talked about spend management. We're simply a credit card. And we're like, hey, should we build spend management or should we partner with spend management? And we went down the approach of partnering. And two things I think um, uh, came to mind there uh, looking in retrospect. Number one was that some of these spend management solutions that we were working with realized that um, from a margin and, and revenue perspective, if you actually have the revenue on the card going as well, you have much better numbers. And so they started looking into ways where they can offer a card as well. So all of a sudden, someone you're working with is turning more competitor and they like makes the relationship more complex. The second one that I think we're underestimating is the time between having an all-in-one solution. Um, because we kind of looked at uh, American Express at the time, like, hey, MX works with all these spend management providers and it really works well. And so we should just do the same. That's not our expertise. And that was, I was very much in that same mindset. Um, and that was probably one of the biggest earlier mistakes that I did where 
I underestimate the value of the software and the financial stack together and how that's actually better from a customer perspective. I think if you look at it only internally from like revenue or anything like that, of course, you're always going to want to build stuff. Uh, but we looked at it mostly from what's best for the customer and what experience can be more differentiated. How do we actually build something that cannot be built unless you have uh, this all-in-one? And that's been really successful for us as we launch travel, uh, as we're looking into procurement spend and, and all these other uh, types of uh, flow. And again, supporting companies at these different scales, um, which have different needs. Appreciate that. We have time for one last question. I mean, really enjoying our conversation. I wish it could go on lo longer. Um, given all the stuff we talked about, I'm curious about, we can start with you, Kaz, like how far out your planning goes and how that's evolved as, as the company has grown particularly in product planning I'm, I'm talking about, yeah. Of course, um, we have even planning, I think is an overloaded term. So I'll talk about when we start. When we started every month, we would basically say, what do we want to get done this month? And that was literally every horizon was in survival mode. That's all we do. And then we moved to quarterly planning, uh, biannual and kind of traditional. We have a few different ways to do planning. So we start with, we have a five-year road like plan, which is mostly financial driven. And so we kind of refresh that every year over the next five years, we actually tend to add another year to the next year. So if you start with like three years, the next year model, four years, then five years, mm -hmm. because over time you want to have um, longer timeframes. The second thing that we do is then we talk about like a product vision that has a few different horizons. So there's like horizon one, which is the current thing that we're building and how we're serving customers. Horizon two, which is where we're looking at next year. And then horizon three is longer term, more ambitious. If all these things pan out, uh, what does that unlock over time? And I'll say, again, that's mostly at the visionary level. And what that's useful for is for teams to think about decisions that don't put them future selves in a bad position where you're like, oh, I never thought about this. And now I have to make a lot of changes two years from now. It's not really at the like, which features we would prioritize now. And then on a yearly basis, we have what are called big rocks. And so we have what are the things that really need to happen in the company? And that's at the project level, product. Uh, we have key metrics in the company. And then we do planning every six months against those big rocks. Um, and then um, the last thing is we have quarterly business reviews every quarter where we basically check in on progress for that in tweaks uh, mid-cycle. Mid so every three months, we have the ability to tweak for the next three months. But the bigger planning cycles, I would say, are uh, for H1 and H2. So yeah. It's so similar to what we do. Uh, um, I don't, I mean, you know, for us, it's like three years versus five years for the long range financial plan and like their little tweaks, but it, it matches it a lot. I, I think, so planning is, is great and all good. I, there are two things that I always ask myself, like one is, are we concrete enough in terms of the gap between maybe the two to three year product vision? and what we need to be, what we need people to do now. A failure mode I've seen at many companies, including Plaid at times is, I say like, or the CEO says like, this is the vision, these are the things we wanna build. And then you look at what we're doing today and like two thirds of it doesn't really match up with a vision because what you haven't done is you haven't, you haven't shown all the nodes between the vision and today that make it clear that there's some things we're working on today that we really shouldn't invest as much in. And so I don't love top-down. Like I think Plaid have always been proud of a lot of bottom-up, but as we've grown, I've realized that I need to provide more clarity on the big things and how they come to today. Like I need to show the next 18 months how they play out. And I'm going to be wrong 
right? And, and we're going to be wrong about that. But at least along the way, we can learn where we're wrong and adjust the plan. But at least it allows you today to cut a lot of stuff that doesn't is not aligned with that three-year vision. Um, you know, I, I give you like a, a really concrete example. Like we we had the big rocks and all that. But we were at a year where like everyone knew revenue growth was really important. And so there was a lot of incremental work that was happening across the company to add half a million of revenue here, a million there, cut costs by like 2 million. And it was happening kind of organically in the company because people knew that it was really important to grow revenue and lower costs. But actually stepping back, it's like that wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was like this bigger thing that would take 18 months. But but the short-term pressure of people because of the annual goal was to really, really care about like getting to profitability. And so when people had extra brain space, they were going to that and they weren't going to the two to three year vision. And that's because I hadn't made it clear what could they do now that would that would ladder up to the vision. So uh, there's the word strategy and planning. You know, I'm like, like, show me a list of milestones. That's like kind of what I want to see. I just want to see milestones, like where you're delivering, when and why and how it builds up. Like that's like the most concrete example. And you do that now in the process? Yeah, we're we're doing it more and more and more. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, uh, uh, um, I think it's like, we're, we're not, not yet. No one listening to this podcast at Plaid, we have not started annual planning because I want to start that as late as possible because it's like, a, I feel it's a distraction right now. You should be focused on hitting our Q3 and Q4 goals. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. When we do start annual planning, it's not just going to be the strategy the like annual goals, but it's going to have this like two years of milestones where people understand like, what are all the things that ladder up to the, to the product vision. But the second point, this is, I think the most important part for planning for me. And there's this whole like writing about it. it's called like evidence-based management. And this is where you force yourself to look, stop with the conventional wisdom. So stop with your vision and your plan and your strategy. And you ask yourself like, what am I seeing on the ground? What is it telling me critically about my business and what do I need to change? And so at Plaid, we change one of our annual goals roughly at the midpoint of the year. And we change it to something that is like the most important thing for the company. That's because we ran a bunch of experiments in the first half of the year that told us like this new thing, like that's a huge opportunity and it should hmm. be a big focus for the company. And I think in traditional world, if we'd just been on like our planning cycle, we wouldn't have done it in June when we did it, we would have waited until annual planning, but you, you needed to force yourself and like, be like, wait, wait, you look at all the data, like this is huge. And, and we can't ignore it. Like every day counts. Like we, this could be such a difference for the business. And there's a lot more of these things that happen at all level in the org. And I think the danger with plans and planning is it, it can give you a false sense that you're like on these rails, but when you're, a, a fast growing company, the biggest opportunities are not exactly where your your like rail track is going. And you don't want to get distracted all the time, but you do need to have this muscle as a company sometimes to like look at where you're seeing in the world. It's telling you something different. You got to turn the ship 20 degrees to the right, like, and you got to do it now. And I, I think that's the part that I actually spend a lot of my brain power on because I'm like planning cycles, like it's happening. There's like people that are running that, right? That's happening. My job actually is outside of planning to think about like what pieces of evidence am I coming across? Where do I need to like understand the domain better where we're ignoring an opportunity, right? Because we're waiting too much for the traditional cadence of the company to get us there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Two things really quick on this. One, building that culture of adaptability and being open to change has been so good for us. I think 
it wasn't necessarily an explicit decision that we made early on, um, but we did force ourselves to do whenever there were one of these like hard choices. Do we wait? Do we change it now? We always chose like, hey, it's the rational thing to do. Just do it and absorb the pain. And you have to bring people along because change is hard and people don't like when plans change and it leads to confusion. But again, building that culturally has worked so well. And we do the same thing where if we learn something in the middle of the quarter, we're not going to wait because what's the point? Like if you, you have that strong conviction that something should change, you might as well change it. And so I think having that culture, especially at the more senior layers in the company is so important. In the early days, we would go to our senior people and they would freak out. And now we're just comfortable with that. And the second more tactical on planning is time boxing. Companies, I know companies that literally plan for like three months out of the six months or four months out of the year combined. It's just madness. Um, and what we realized with all the processes, whether it's like quarterly reviews, annual planning, biannual planning, whatever, is it will fill whatever time you allot. Uh, if you give it two months, you might think like, oh, I need all this time. People will fill it and they will still be unhappy that there's too much pressure. We need more time on this, et cetera, et cetera. If you take the same process and you say now it's a month, people will have exactly the same thing and you'll get roughly the same output. Uh, so we're very, we've been very strict about like over time, just capping the planning process um, and say, yep, it will be more intense during that time and we'll make some mistakes and we'll figure some stuff afterwards. But if we say it's three months, it will take three months. If we say it's one month, it will take one month. Sean, Denis, Kaz, thank you so much for joining us here. As It's not lost on me. As, as you guys are talking, I'm just like, it's it's like a um, a fire hydrant of, of experience and like battle scars and like in the trenches, like proven experience. And I've been thinking, you're not, you haven't just done that at these hyper growth companies. You have spent most of both of your careers in hyper growth, which is, which is amazing. And, and thank you for sharing all of this on the Tearsheet podcast with us. Of course, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're just lucky. That's the way I think about it. How so? Big companies that are growing fast. Again, well, is it luck or skill? Growth problem. Thanks, guys. Cool. Thank you, Doug.